welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet Pod. My name is Dominic Shikitano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. Today's episode is another installment of a new oral history project and podcast series entitled The General Counsel's Opinions, Conversations with the Attorneys Who Have Led EPA's Office of General Counsel. This series uh, will document the history of the OGC through conversations with the general counsels who have led the office. ELI would like to thank Alston and Bird for supporting the General Counsel's Opinion series. Today I'm here with Kevin Minoli a current Alston and Bird partner who was an attorney in EPA's OGC for 18 years before joining his firm. From January 2017 to January 2018, Kevin had the opportunity to lead the OGC as EPA's acting general counsel. During that time, Kevin says he would often look at the list of general counsels on the EPA's website and wonder what the time leading the office was like for each of them. The General Counsel's Opinions podcast series is a chance for Kevin and all of our listeners to hear firsthand accounts of these experiences. Kevin will be joining us throughout the series, each time for a conversation with the former EPA General Counsel. On today's episode, Kevin speaks with Gary Guzzi, who served as General Counsel from July 1999 to January 2001. Gary has 35 years of experience in environmental law, regulation, and public policy. Mr. Guzzi served as General Counsel and counselor to the EPA administrator during the Clinton administration. He was a member of the administrator's senior policy team, setting regulatory, legislative, and communication strategy. During his time as general counsel, he led efforts to design regulatory approaches to protect children's environmental health, develop and defend new air quality and motor vehicle standards, defend EPA from congressional oversight investigations, and protect iconic ecosystems such as the Everglades and Yellowstone National Park. He also authored climate change opinions that were later ratified by the U.S. Supreme Court in its landmark decision finding that greenhouse gases are pollutants under federal law. After his time at EPA, Mr. Guzzi served in the Obama administration as Deputy Director and General Counsel of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, where he helped develop and guide the Obama administration's environmental, public health, and clean energy agenda, bringing business insights to government policy and coordinating policy across government agencies. In his current role as Senior of Counsel at Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C., he provides counsel to industry leaders in the transportation, energy, technology, and consumer sectors on emerging environmental and clean energy issues. He also co-chairs the firm's Energy Industry Group. Thanks to Kevin and Gary for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Gary, thanks for being here. Kevin, thank thank you for the opportunity to be with you, and thank you to ELI for hosting this series. It's really a terrific and important discussion. So you hold a special place for me in terms of uh, the general counsels that I'll speak to because you were the general counsel when I first came to EPA. Uh, So our time overlapped just a little bit in terms of uh, I joined uh, as a summer law clerk in the summer of 1999, and and you were there at that point uh, just having become General Counsel, uh, confirmed General Counsel in July of 99. And then uh, I was back for the last six months of the Clinton administration. uh, Before then, uh, we moved into the Bush administration and you moved on. So uh, I appreciate uh, being able to talk to someone 
who was important to me. And I remember uh, very, you know, very well from my days as a law clerk and as a new attorney. And one of the ways uh, we like to start this conversation is just asking how you came to be uh, the general counsel of EPA. What led you to that position and, and how did it happen? Um, sure. And, and Kevin, I regret that we didn't have more time to overlap. Of course, um, I think none of us were expecting that the Supreme Court was going to rule the way it did in the uh, Bush versus Core litigation. Um, but, um, you know, certainly I cherished my time at um, EPA as general counsel and uh, would have liked to have had the opportunity to work with you even more. <laughs> but, but that said, uh, you know, I, I felt enormously fortunate to have the chance to both come to the agency and to serve as its general counsel. Um, I um, had wanted to do public service and environmental work um, from the start of my legal career. Um, I uh, went to private practice, actually, first to get the training, thinking that I ultimately would go into government. I had the opportunity, actually, to work with a former uh, uh, deputy general counsel at EPA from the Carter administration, an absolutely superb lawyer named David Bickert. Um, and then spent four years there and then moved to the Justice Department um, where I joined the Environmental Defense Section. So I had the opportunity uh, to help to defend EPA actions um, in courts across the country, as well as to do affirmative um, water quality and wetlands litigation, just the odd configuration of the work of that section. Um, so I got to handle cases from Alaska to the Everglades. I got to defend um, the uh, EPA's iconic veto of the Two Forks Dam in um, Colorado outside of Denver, uh, which was a um, notable action that the uh, EPA during the Bush administration took under the Clean Water Act for, for veto authority. Um, probably the largest case I was involved in was the challenge that the federal government brought against the state of Florida for failing to regulate agricultural discharges that were um, polluting the Everglades um, and uh, destroying potentially that ecosystem. It was a really hard fought litigation in the middle of it. Florida had an election. Um, it, uh, um, Lawton Childs, a former Senator um, and governor Childs actually went into court and surprising everyone um, conceded that the Everglades were polluted and needed to be cleaned up. Um, and uh, he appointed a, um, a head of his environmental agency, uh, a woman named Carol Browner, to um, uh, really bring to life that commitment to cleaning up the Everglades. So as part of a, a large um, trial team at DOJ, um, I got to know um, then-Secretary Browner uh, as we worked together over the course of about two years to develop a consent decree um, to clean up the Everglades. Uh, she had come to Governor Childs from um, Senator Gore's staff, um, where she um, was uh, leading the policy efforts there. And when President Clinton was elected, uh, he asked her to run the EPA. Um, and she, I think, had the foresight to recognize that so many of the challenges the agency faced were ones that really were arbitrated in the courts, that were legal disputes that depended upon EPA's authority, 
and that um, those who had worked on these issues at the Justice Department had a, a good overview of how those environmental laws actually work. So she um, turned to a number of um, her um, former, um, I guess you might call them prosecutors, uh, Carol Brown was the defendant in litigation that I was handling, but a number of us uh, were fortunate enough to be asked to come over, including the head of the enforcement office and um, uh, Steve Herman and uh, a number of other um, special assistants. And I was actually first asked to come over as deputy general counsel, uh, which I did. And I had been holding a career slot uh, in the Justice Department. So it took a little bit of time, about a year, to clear the presidential personnel uh, process and convince them that a, uh, you know, just a career um, employee from DOJ who had started out actually in the Reagan administration um, was uh, committed to carrying out the president's agenda. Uh, I came over as deputy general counsel, did that for a time, um, then moved into the counselor to the administrator role, and then ultimately um, with the consent of the Senate um, uh, into the general counsel role. When you were at, at DOJ, sort of, did you ever have the thought that that working on that Everglades litigation, that that was positioning you for something of, you know, sort of the, the rise from there to these higher positions? Or it seems to be sort of uh, almost one day you're, you're working hard on a case like it was a normal day. And the next day that uh, you've got opportunities to do something significantly higher in terms of where the, um, you know, in the rankings of the of the administration. It was the furthest thought from my mind. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, I recognized um, when um, President Clinton was elected that, um, uh, you know, that then Secretary Browner would be a, a superb candidate to become administrator. But I, I mean, you know, I had been working on the case long before um, the uh, election of Lawton Childs and uh, his appointment to Carol Browner as the secretary of the Florida Department of Environmental Regulation before she became the defendant in our case. Um, and um, I think, um, you know, we, we, we did that work because it was um, uh, important and of interest and um, pathbreaking. Um, and uh, I had huge respect for the, EPA lawyers that I worked with on a range of cases. I mean, the uh, Two Forks veto was a very, very significant matter for EPA. Um, and uh, really, there were you know, superb lawyers who were there. And I had thought that at some point in my career, it would be wonderful to have an opportunity to spend some time at EPA. But certainly, um, that path was the furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> Um, you know, in the ultimate sort of small world uh, arena, uh, I actually represent the Miccosukee tribe of Indians in Florida in the continuation yeah. of that litigation uh, that, that of the uh, down in the Everglades and the attempt to continue to enforce the consent decree that was reached there. So uh, we're still How working wonderful. hard. Yeah. yeah, still working hard in the same same direction that you started many years ago. What was it like for you being general counsel? Um, it was a uh, uh, amazing experience in um, in so many ways. I mean, it, it certainly um, was hugely challenging substantively and hugely gratifying personally. Um, 
you know, ch- challenging in the sense that at the time the agency was sort of under enormous, um, almost pressure and, and um, siege, it, it seemed like, um, and um, had to figure out how to have a affirmative agenda of environmental protection. And um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but I think that meant that the role of the uh, agency lawyers was very much a, a critical piece of finding, you know, workable solutions going forward. And, uh, you know, for me, the the range of matters that I had an opportunity to work on, you, you mentioned, um, you know, kids' environmental health, expanding right to know, setting the first um, um, fine particle and um, tightening the ozone standards, having an opportunity to work on rules that were taking sulfur out of gasoline uh, and diesel fuel and closing the SUV loophole, um, working on the beginnings of an understanding of authority to address um, carbon dioxide as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, a whole range of things on implementing you know, statutes that had institutionalized this idea that kids are different and deserving of special protection to say Drinking Water Act the Food Quality Protection Act, um, and uh, continuing to work on some of these place-based things. We did really interesting work on uh, protecting threats around Yellowstone. Um, we did um, the continuation of our work on the Everglades, including uh, being able to achieve some important legislation to, to authorize the restoration plan that had been the subject of the consent decree. I mean, the range of things was, from an environmental lawyer's perspective, absolutely breathtaking, seeing the way in which it affected people, you know, fundamentally uh, in their day-to-day lives seemed really important, seeing the way that it affected the ground. Um, And the chance to work with a, a team of people who were usually capable, and I say that both among the EPA OGC staff, and um, we can talk more about what they bring to the table, as well as to a very dedicated group of political leadership at the agency who were there largely intact from the start of the Clinton administration right through to the very end, uh, eight years of um, consistency and vision and leadership. And um, to really have a, um, you know, a central role in that was an enormously gratifying experience. So you had used the words at the beginning of your answer, challenging and gratifying. Uh, was it fun for you? Oh, it was It was tremendously fun. Uh, I mean, you know, I use the word challenging because of the context. If you remember, um, and, and this is a while back, not everyone may know this, but, you know, the agency was subject to um, a, a series of legislative efforts um, to enact across-the-board legislation that would have amended the underlying uh, environmental statutes and imposed um, things like regulatory reform requirements and um, takings requirements, um, known as the Contract with America, um, something that then House Leader Newt Gingrich had sort of campaigned on and tried to get enacted, and then coupled it with um, just extensive appropriations riders that were designed to deauthorize and and defund a range of activities. So sort of set up this battle where the environment was the centerpiece. And um, that, I think, 
made it quite challenging. There were aggressive congressional investigations of the agency's response to the contract with America um, that were challenging to manage. And then as, you know, sort of the agency came out of that, there was a recognition that, you know, for uh, the many of the problems that we were facing, the second generation of environmental problems, that in fact the statutes that had been created were a little bit rigid and maybe not the optimal uh, way in which to address things like non-point source pollution and, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, enhanced capabilities in industry in being able to manage and report on their uh, use of um, hazardous materials, um, the way in which uh, we were addressing um, cross-border pollution or um, uh, pollution that aggregated over regions or um, the challenge of um, global warming as it was then referred to or climate change. And so trying to make those tools responsive to uh, the problems that the country was then confronting after 25 years. And, you know, at the 20th anniversary of, of EPA, there was this, um, uh, I think, uh, anniversary event where um, people talked about EPA as being the crucible of everyone's discontent. And sort of that sense that no one was really happy with the agency and it became sort of the centerpiece of discontent uh, made the job, in fact, you know, a, a very challenging one to be able to address those those concerns and then have a, a um, positive affirmative agenda. One of the things that I observed uh, over my time at EPA was both the expectation that EPA would would act on and address any new contaminant or any new pollution source or new thing that we we understood to be more harmful than it, than we understood it before, but without any new tools. And so the agency would then you know, face pressure to do something and then would act. And, and when they acted, people would say, well, the law didn't really envision that when it was written, and therefore it's not a good vehicle for addressing that, that contaminant or that pollution. And the agency was in many ways stuck between trying to do the best they had with what they had and then, you know, frustrating people who felt that we were trying to stretch it too far at times. Um, I, I think the other um, uh, dynamic, and, and certainly I experienced that, um, was that so much of the agency's prioritization and budget was controlled over consent decrees because it had not been able to meet the unrealistic deadlines that had been placed upon it. And so those two things combined to, I think, ratchet up even further the level of, I think, discontent or sense that the agency um, wasn't really being responsive to um, the significant challenges that were being faced. Let me ask you two questions that are flip sides of the same coin, uh, what are the other opposite sides of the same coin. What was your best day and what was your worst day? Um, maybe I'll start with the, the worst and <laughs> leave with uh, better memories. So I, I, I think one of the um, more difficult days was um, May 14th, 1999, not that I, you know, uh, don't remember the day specifically. I remember that day because it was actually the day um, that my family was um, with two young kids was um, packing up 
to move to a new home in Washington. So we had the um, the moving trucks loaded, uh, and uh, we're just about getting ready to go when I got a call that the um, D.C. Circuit had come down with a opinion in um, a case that was known as American Trucking Association versus Browner, um, which was a challenge to EPA's um, issuance of the fine particle, first time ever fine particle standards, and um, tightened, um, significantly tightened ozone standards. And um, the D.C. Circuit ruling um, was um, several fold. Um, but the the most surprising element of it was something that um, hadn't even really been squarely briefed. Uh, and it was a finding that um, the structure of the Clean Air Act itself, that the delegation of authority that had been given by Congress to EPA to issue the fundamental national ambient air quality public health standards um, was unconstitutional and in violation of the non-delegation doctrine. And this was a doctrine that had been, you know, barely used, if at all, and only, um, you know, uh, in the 1920s and 30s and had been largely um, discredited and disregarded. And what the D.C. Circuit had found was that um, EPA uh, exercise of authority was essentially unconstitutional, under the non-delegation doctrine, so that the um, ozone and particulate matter standards, the ozone standards in, in that instance, which is a non-threshold pollutant, the argument was that there was no basis for the agency to exercise um, its discretion and no authority, in fact, to do so under the non-delegation doctrine. That was a, a shocking development legally, and it sort of set into a tailspin what had been uh, the administrators and the administration's highest priority, which was adopting these new heightened fundamental. So it set into motion this effort to um, uh, uh, appeal that decision. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the remarkable days um, was actually um, election day in, um, I guess it would have been 2000 when that case was argued by the then Solicitor General Seth Waxman uh, before the Supreme Court. And, you know, you had this huge frenzy during Election Day, a media frenzy. But as, as those who have gone into the court know, you don't take any electronic devices in with you. You, uh, at the time, our Blackberries were put away, our, our cell phones were put away. Uh, there was no communication with the outside world, and you entered into this very, um, uh, you know, sort of concentrated discussion of EPA's fundamental legal authority to set uh, national ambient air quality standards. And the other element of that case that was so significant that we were looking to defend was the idea that those standards could be based upon public health as the fundamental consideration, as opposed to the consideration of costs and benefits which we acknowledge were appropriate for implementation decisions, but not for setting a level for the protection of public health, considering um, what Congress said, requisite to protect public health with an adequate margin of safety, uh, considering vulnerable 
um, subpopulations. And uh, we felt that that was a sufficient justification and that that fundamental architecture was usually important too. Uh, so it, it took till shortly after the election when um, we were no longer serving to have that view vindicated, but enormously uh, important and gratifying. Um, there were, you know, there are other days when to see um, the president sort of embrace those things that you've been working on. Um, I, I remember very clearly a, a, a speech that he gave at um, an elementary school in um, in South uh, East DC, Murray Elementary School, um, where President Clinton announced an agreement that um, we all had worked on and reached to. Um, uh, Close the SUV emissions loophole to drive um, motor vehicle emission standards much, much cleaner by you know something like 95%, and to take sulfur out of uh, gasoline. All of which had a huge effect on kids' um, asthma uh, and you know a fundamental environmental health consideration. And to you know sort of work on something and then to be able to see it all come to life in that way that has a real uh, impact upon the the people who would be affected was um, a really wonderful kind of day. Looking back, are there things that you wish you would have done differently? Um, no, I, let, let me take a second and talk about what I um, tried to do. And I would have liked to have had more time to try and make those effective. Um, so uh, I mentioned the contract with America, and I had this perception when I went into OGC as general counsel that um, the, that office had served this enormously important institutional role through prior administrations where the environmental laws were significantly under attack through the contract with America as sort of the last best defense of the environmental laws. And you almost had this image of, OGC lawyers sort of standing there with their statute books, holding them, them up, you know, trying to hold <laughs> off the assault saying No, you know, uh, and um, I, I think that that had an enormously good, good effect, but it also had a consequence that folks hadn't fully predicted, which was as the program offices were really grappling with and trying to respond to those new challenges we spoke about as they were facing uh, political pressure, input from business, uh, at the end of the day, they would try things and then come to OGC and say, is this legal? Can you check the box? And that had this effect of almost enhancing the rigidity, I felt, of the advice that we were giving, because it sort of forced uh, OGC lawyers into a corner. And so what I tried to do was to say, is there a way to think about this differently. Is there a way to really sort of try and integrate OGC's legal advice at the front end of that process so that we're not an impediment, but we can be a resource in helping to think through what are the options that actually might be available and what might be some of the best ways to accomplish those objectives um, so that at the end of the day, there was a much more collaborative approach to rendering the legal advice and devising a, a course of conduct, and that the end result wasn't a simple check-the-box exercise. I thought that that would enhance the value of the work that OGC was providing, would enhance the satisfaction of OGC lawyers 
and it would really would enhance the quality of the end result as well. And I think we made tremendous strides with that. I would have liked to have had an opportunity to try and do more of that, to try and accomplish some of that. The other area that I, I feel like we just got started with was um, we did a lot of work looking at environmental justice tools um, uh, that might exist to recognize uh, EJ concerns in permitting in particular. Um, we put out a memo under under my name um, towards the end of my tenure there um, that was designed to spark conversation. Um, and I think that there was a, a you know, sort of a important um, a conversation that was just beginning around that, that I would have appreciated an opportunity to be able to spend more time on and, and really uh, continue to try and make progress with. On the on your first initiative there, uh, you know, I think my experience was that we were very integrated. Uh, you know, after um, after your work uh, with the program office, and so we were on the work groups from the very beginning, and we were there as part of the team yeah. and and able to influence it a lot as the things went along the way. And that I think both it helped us in our relationship with our clients, it helped the product be stronger, and then it helped us better defend it uh, at the end of the process because we had right. understood how it was formed in the first place. Yeah, um, that's very gratifying to hear. Yeah. So what are you most proud of from your time as general counsel at EPA? Um, I, there are uh, certainly a number of things, you know, the, the work, as I mentioned, on environmental justice, starting a conversation around climate change, um, uh, really institutionalizing kids' environmental health as an issue, um, expanding public access to information through Right to Know, but uh, and you know, helping to defend the basic architecture of uh, clean air protection. But I, I actually um, want to talk about something different that the agency does, that OGC does in particular. That's a, a hard topic to. I think at times understand, but an absolutely vital one, and that is the kind of counseling that the office gives on um, ethics issues and the absolute critical importance. I always said that um, our um, sort of currency as an agency is our credibility um, and our um, ethics. And um, I don't say this as a criticism of any other administration, but I was very proud that um, we, you know, sort of constantly uh, looked for ways to instill that message in the political staff and work with the career staff uh, to make sure that everyone understood what that mean meant. Um, I think the administrator I served was a uh, absolutely uh, an advocate for that message and. The fact that we were able to have, you know, eight years of uh, a, a, a spotless record um, at EPA, I think, helped us at the end of the day to do as much as we did that, you know, ultimately proved to be quite enduring. You know, having been the designated agency ethics official in my time for about five years or so, I definitely appreciate uh, the importance of of recognizing not just ethics for ethics sake, but also ethics for what it does and in, in terms of what it allows you to do on a policy ethics, because you have the integrity that comes with 
everyone knowing that you've done it by the book and that you haven't pushed any envelopes yeah. and you haven't bent any rules. <clears throat> and that brings with it credibility that, that otherwise, if you don't have, sometimes you can't advance the policy goals on the environmental issues the way that you would like. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the work that you did on that. Having had some time today to talk about looking backwards at, at your time as general counsel, I want to shift for the last couple of questions to look to the future. There will be a time where there is a 13th person to lead the general counsel's office uh, as the general counsel. And what advice might you have for that person as they prepared to take the position over? Um, maybe this was easier to do because there were fewer former general counsels when I came in. But um, I try to um, actually get together with as many of the former general counsels as I could, thinking that um, it would help me to understand uh, what some of the challenges were, what were some of the um, you know areas I should be um, aware of and look to avoid, um, and just any general advice I could get. And I'd say that, look, there's a range of former general counsels who are from both parties, but who at the end of the day um, fundamentally are committed to um, carrying out the environmental and public health laws with um, integrity and objectivity, who can serve as a resource to you, um, as well as a career staff who, you know, I've heard uh, other general counsels say that they're the world's experts. But I felt like not only are the world's experts, they're the people who actually wrote the regulations. They're the people who read every single comment and, uh, you know, sort of came up with the framework that's been developed and so have such a deep understanding and are um, enormously eager to um, help to find um, solutions. So really working in both of those realms, um, really working closely with the career staff and valuing what they bring, as well as recognizing that there's a, a broader community, um, whether it's the former general counsels, whether it's the academic community, uh, uh, whether it's the business community, who want to provide input and have uh, enormously um, valuable insights to provide. One of the things that stood out for me so far in this series is uh, despite the, the wide range of times and circumstances uh, under which people served, there is so much in common about the experiences that general counsels have had and what their biggest challenge was and what their worst day was. And mm. um, there's a lot of commonality that runs through it, regardless of who you serve for, when you serve, mm. or or um, what's the big issue of the day at the, you know, that you're facing. Right. E EPA is about to turn 50 on December 2nd, uh, 2020. They'll celebrate their 50th anniversary. What do you see ahead for the agency in its next 50 years? <laughs> well, there obviously are some significant challenges on the horizon. Um, you know, one of which is having a, um, uh, legal toolkit that um, might not be the freshest in the world. It might not be um, as well sort of or finely calibrated to deal with the kinds of uh, challenges that there are. Um, global climate change being uh, probably the iconic example. Um, I, I also think that because of the 
politicization of the environment and environmental and public health protection as an issue, that makes EPA's task all the more harder. And and so I I actually go back and frequently went back to um, some comments that uh, Bill Ruckelshaus, who was EPA's first administrator, um, and then came in um, again um, during the Reagan administration when the agency had some uh, ethics challenges. Um, he was asked again to come in. And he, he said that, you know, one of the critical things um, for those involved in the debate is to try to dampen the swinging of the pendulum to, you know, sort of rise above the smoky battlefield and try and find um, more enduring principles that um, we all can agree to. And I, and I think it's really incumbent upon um, whoever comes in to, uh, you know, demonstrate some leadership that is about how does one find um, those kinds of outcomes that ultimately will, in fact, endure. Um, no doubt there will be, you know, legal challenges. No, no doubt there may be um, congressional oversight and concerns. But I think that there's, you know, paths forward to help to um, uh, address some of these fundamental environmental and public health challenges, some of these global challenges, um, in a way that can build consensus and build agreement. And that's an enormously important task. I think that's a perfect place for us to end our conversation on. So thank you, Gary, again, for coming in and being part of our conversation today and being part of the series. Uh, my pleasure. And thanks, Kevin. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to spend time together. And thank you to you a lot. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.